fanzine near and dear to my heart is Peter Davis's late, great Your Flesh. Your Flesh was a product of the early 80s Minneapolis hardcore punk scene. Peter was a California transplant whose sense of hustle helped grow the magazine into one of the era's crucial underground resources, covering all facets of fringe culture for an impressive 20-year run. There are strong parallels with Forced Exposure magazine, which also began as a hardcore fanzine before evolving into something weirder and more wonderful. And for a while in the 80s, the publications shared many contributors, such as Byron Coley, Howard Wolfing, and Chris Digliano. That was before my time. I discovered Your Flesh in the late 90s at Tower Records during the magazine's peak. The records review section in particular was stacked, with diverse and discerning voices who forced their good taste on readers with stunning style. Peter Davis was also a prominent booking agent, working with some of the best underground talent of the 80s and 90s. I'd interviewed Peter back in 2000, and thought we were due for an update. I hope you enjoy this interview. If you're a fan of the show, please leave a review or a rating and tell a friend. Peter, thank you for joining us. It's really nice to hear your voice. What's a surprising fact about you? (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't really really know how to respond to that other than the chuckle. Like, you know, what what, what are you looking for here, Armin? Uh, are you a Freemason? You're really into world music. I don't know. You, you, you tap danced as a kid. No, no, none of those things. All right. Maybe, maybe something I didn't know about you until a couple days ago. Um, I didn't know you played in a bunch of bands when you were younger. Oh, I played, I played in a couple bands, uh, when I was living in Seattle, Oh, I screamed, shouted, caterwauled, whatever you want to call it, in a, pal, in a band called The Social Deviants. What were they about? Uh, it, was, it was kind of like uh, back in those days, it was kind of like what's called a fuck band. Uh, basically, you know, screw around. No serious agenda, just friends getting together, making noise. And that's kind of what that was about. There was like members of the Farts and future members of the Human and some other bands, uh, RPA, et cetera, et cetera. Did uh, maybe a half dozen shows. Uh, maybe one of the most memorable shows was with the Fix from Lansing, Michigan. Oh, wow. Short-lived. And then when I moved to Minneapolis, I was in a band that was a little bit more serious called Red Meat. I started the band and I got kicked. I was the first to get kicked out of the band. <laughs> Why they kick you out? I don't know. I sucked probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, you know, they just they just had different ideas of what they wanted to do, and it uh, they didn't feel as though I was capable or up to the task. And they had their had a buddy of theirs uh, waiting in the wings that they thought would be more suitable, and they jammed with them a couple times. <laughs> confirmed themselves as being correct and unceremoniously gave me the heave-ho. I was a little pissed off about it at first, but it's just like, yeah, you know, kind of shrugged my shoulders, like whatever. <laughs> so you mentioned Seattle, you mentioned Minneapolis, but you grew up in LA, I think, right? Yeah, I grew up in Long Beach, California, a little beach community called Belmont Shore. Were you like a typical skate punk brat? Yeah, that's that. That's fair. That's definitely fair. I was an incorrigible surf slash skate rat. Something of a, I guess, a little bit of a troublemaker. Yeah. Yeah. 
any memorable shows from uh, from back then in your Cali days? Actually, you know, all of the stuff that I saw up until a point was like all like, uh, you know, arena rock. And it wasn't until like just before I had like skedaddled to the Midwest that I had like actually found myself, you know, to club shows and more specifically to punk shows. What were some of the arena rock shows like Ted Nugent, things on that level or? Uh, Led Zeppelin. Yes. You know, and that stuff kind of graduated to on to other things. There's like uh, the community that I lived in, we had a record store called Warehouse Records and Tapes. And it was on the main drag in this beach town I grew up in. They There was a period of time there during the school year, probably two consecutive years, uh, where they were handing out free tickets to go and see tapings of Don Kirshner's rock concerts. Oh, no way. Yeah, which I don't know if you're familiar or not, but, you know, it was a TV show that came on late night uh, on week, generally weekends. I think it was like Friday night, maybe Saturday night, and they'd come on at like, you know, 12 o'clock at night. And uh, they taped some of them, not all of them, but they taped them for at least these two seasons at what was the original Long Beach Auditorium, which was like immediately adjacent to the arena. And in between the two buildings, which were abutted against one another, the auditorium had this, I guess you'd call it like a sound stage, maybe a rehearsal stage, uh, but it was like a, a smaller theater that held like, I'd say maybe four, it's like maybe 400 people, maybe 500 be a stretch, but it was seated and it was like, you know, canny levered where it was like, you know, kind of like a clamshell. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Curved in the back where the seats were, and everything was on a rise, almost like bleachers. So I got to see a lot of interesting things there. I got to see Blue Oyster Cult and T-Rex for free the night before they were actually playing a sold-out arena concert do- uh, next door. Got to see Golden Earring and Fly in the Family Stone and bunch of stuff. So that kind of was a tipping point right there. Got to see New York Dolls. That's sick. Another tipping point. And all that stuff kind of segued into like, you know, while I was like heavily into like what would be considered hard rock or acid rock or heavy metal, uh, kind of segued into like, you know, some of the glam stuff and some of the punk at that point. But Roxy Music, Bowie, all that shit wound up kind of being sort of a gateway segue into the punk stuff, Newark Dolls, et cetera. Early club shows would be like stuff I'd go and see at like the Whiskey or the Roxy. So I remember going to see the Go-Go's when they were still a punk band, seeing the Dickies at the Roxy. And then it was like, you know, off to the Midwest. Why the move to the Midwest? Uh, kind of, you know, get away from family and just kind of like needed to change school, opportunity, that stuff. You went to University of Minnesota? Very short period of time. I think it lasted about a semester. Academia, not your thing, eh? Yeah, it kind of took it. it kind of took a couple worlds out it and discovered that I really wasn't cut out for it. It was. It wasn't a matter. It wasn't a matter of not wanting to learn or being unwilling to learn. It was just kind of more a discipline thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but no, man, it's not for everybody. It just didn't have the wherewithal to buckle down, you know. But you were busy. You were doing stuff. You were involved in the early 80s Minneapolis scene. What was that like? I don't know. It was was kind of fun. 
you know, more more reckless energy on my part, just kind of like throwing yourself at it. Were there many bands coming through? Uh, you know, there there were. It was it was a, kind of a fertile time. You know, I think you've heard at this point that the network was different then. It wasn't the internet. It was like, you know, letter writing and phone calling. And people would like get these lists of like bootlegged phone numbers, i.e. like corporate corporate accounts and things like that. And they use those codes to make long distance calls on pay phones and, you know, connecting with other people and, you know, lining up places to crash, lining up shows. Were you part of that early on too, Peter? Like putting on shows and networking with folks from around the country? Through the the fanzine that like kind of opened up a whole like, you know, network of people, you know, to contact and collaborate with. So that's kind of how the fanzine kind of came about. We were just, uh, you know, not really happy with what the local press media was doing, or should say not doing, you know, the things they were ignoring. And so the zine was like a way to uh, champion that stuff and help promote it and push it along and create an audience for it, I guess. Was this like 81? It was about 81, about 82, actually. You know, late 81, early 82. I had just moved out to the Twin Cities from being in Seattle for a spell. And I had been in the Twin Cities for a spell before that. Which I think was like, you know, not quite a year's time. Thought I was homesick for California, went back to California, decided I hated California, and had an opportunity through a friend up in Seattle to go up there and so and check it out. And so I did. And that was great, but <laughs> the rain became a serious factor for me. I just could not hang with the like it was like going into my second winter there and it was just like I just had enough not enough sunshine and my friend who had originally uh suggested Minnesota as a place to go to before had uh just he kind of followed the same path I did went out to Minnesota got homesick went back to California hated it but instead of going to Seattle he went back to Minneapolis so he and I were still in contact with one another and you know again there was that letter writing thing he would like send me you know a letter and he'd include flyers and uh, along with the flyers came uh, a lot of times uh, flyers were printed from the venues uh, where there would be like an actual specific gig flyer on one side and on the other side would be the venue's calendar for that particular month and you know seeing all the stuff that was going back going through the twin cities at that time compared to what was going on in seattle was kind of night and day not that seattle wasn't getting its fair share of things but comparatively it really kind of wasn't because back in those days the pacific northwest was kind of like an island unto itself that makes sense yeah. It's just kind of like a geographically, it's kind of like at a weird geographic disconnect. I mean, where were you going to go if you, like, say, were a Los Angeles band and you drove all the way up to, well, what your, your next bet is going to go to, what, Vancouver, Canada, if you can get across the border? And then where? Then where are you going to go? Yeah. You mentioned the fan scene, your flesh. You had a couple partners in crime initially. A guy named Ron Clark and some guy named Bob Mould who played in a band called Husker Du. How did you guys get together? 
when I was living in Seattle, I went on a trip to the Twin Cities just to hang out, you know, a little vacation. Saw Husker Du. And I had actually seen them one time before I'd split back in 79 and thought they were pretty, pretty cool. So I got to see them again and got to talking to them. And so this is sort of like kind of a friendship was struck and it evolved from there. So that's, you know, the conversation with the fanzine started with uh, Ron. It was like kind of his idea. And uh, there was this other kid named Dave Ross. And I don't know if uh, that rings any bells, but Dave's the guy responsible for just doing that multi-episode uh, on the history of Minnesota hardcore, Minnesota punk. Yeah, yeah, I Did watched a little that? bit of that this week when I was just finding stuff to ask you. Yeah, it, it's great. Yeah, he works, for, he works for Minnesota Public Television. He put that together. So he was also in cahoots. He's, back then, he's, he, had a, uh, he had a pet ferret. And he modeled a comic strip after the ferret called Ferret. Yeah. And so those are like, you know, in the very earliest issues of uh, Your Flesh. So I don't know, it just kind of happened naturally, you know, just an organic thing of like, you know, kind of friendship and hanging out, drinking beers, you know, talking about like things you can do or you want to do. And Ron had brought the idea up again and we just kind of ran with it from there. It's funny. It's like you, you know, uh, I don't know if you read the Bob Mould uh, autobiography, but, you know, there's not a single mention about it. But, uh, you know, some industrial fanzine that he was involved in back then that nobody at all remembers except for Bob. Yeah, it's weird. Wow, that is odd. It sounds like the mag got big pretty quickly. I was reading by your second issue, you guys had 500 copies in print. What had happened was, was it the second issue? There was this guy named Dana. I'm not going to say his last name, but he worked for, and I'm not going to name, uh, <laughs> I'm sure the Statue of Limitations or now, but he worked at one of the <laughs> uh, local television affiliates, one of the major network affiliates. And they had this amazing, like, you know, full-blooded print shop in the basement of the TV station. And this guy was like, kind of like a music fan. He was going to shows, like, kind of like, I don't even remember how he hooked up with him, but he just like said, I was like, hey, I got free access to a printer. I can make this look really slick. <laughs> you know, metal plates, the whole thing. And so uh, he like kind of, he kind of like snuck us in. Like, <laughs> it was crazy. Instead of getting free photocopies, now we had access to like, you know, free offset printing. So really good production values from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you look at it and it's like, access to that kind of production and it still looked as amateurish and shoddy as it did, you know, it still came out. But we were learning, you know, we didn't know the first thing about it. We just like kind of dove in with both feet first. And you guys had a lot of contributors from the beginning too. I think the whole idea of Your Flesh, the name Your Flesh was community and getting lots of input from other local voices. Right. That is correct. So it's just kind of, uh, you know, pool, make a a cooperative, you know, pull together all the resources you possibly could from the community of people of like-minded folk. And you guys weren't much interested in standard for your covers. You weren't really much interested in standard live shots of bands. You guys had a lot of striking comic graphics, a ton of skulls too. Yeah, well, you know, we're juvenile. We're juvenile delinquents. <laughs> what did we know? <laughs> we didn't know any better. You know, it's like what we were into, horror movies and comic books and, you know, 
just at the at the time it just struck us as maybe a little more interesting i think so i think it gave a you had an identity from the beginning people would associate these covers with your flesh yeah i guess you know i mean you know and it wound up just kind of like uh over time just like it wound up uh evolving into like you know a, a place to showcase artists just as the inside was like place to showcase everything else did you see like a connection between some of these things, Peter, like underground comics, horror films, punk rock music, kind of fringe music? I think it was all like pretty much interconnected, you know, all on the, all the like kind of like on the outsider away from the norm front. How much of it was kind of your taste and Ron's taste and how much of it was sort of community taste? Was there like a defined aesthetic or? Oh, I think, I think much more honestly much more the former than it was the latter you know and just being yourself and like flaunting that it's like you should ideally attract like-minded people right Mm -hmm. and you and ron after a bunch of issues you parted ways and then it was your magazine what what happened there you know it was basically i was like spending money on long distance calls and on postage and things of that nature and but we just weren't seeing eye to eye on uh, how to grow it. You were a bit more ambitious, maybe, about taking the mag to another level? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it's like, well, if we're going to be reviewing records, it's like uh, there's a thing called promo records. And how do we get promo records? Well, we foster relationships with the record labels. You know, you write letters and you make phone calls and you connect with people. I wanted to do that. You know, I wanted to, uh, I guess, minimalize the amount of money that we had to spend on things that we were giving coverage to. Was it kind of like a clash of ideals, like Ron saying, "That's not punk. We we just want to keep it." Well, I know I read somewhere. I, I read somewhere not too long ago, Ron had said that you know we were living together and we were working together. And he had just like, uh, had reached a point where he had just had enough, which, you know, if I recall it, we weren't living together at that time. We had like stopped living together quite a while prior to that. Uh, and then again, it was like really, it kind of just boiled down to direction, you know, vision, direction, and money. He didn't want to spend any money. And I wanted to figure out a way of like being able to pull in some money to make some money. Yeah. And some people had a problem with that, too, you know? <laughs> was it just the connection of punk or underground music and commerce was just not... Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the, 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 you should never be right because you're being a sellout. That whole conceit. It sounds like you were just trying to maybe, like, make a living doing something that you love. You saw some possibilities here with the magazine and with booking shows and you had, it's probably fair to say, like some business and networking savvy, and you wanted to use that. The, the, you know, the booking shows thing came later, but it was an outgrowth. It was a, a byproduct of what, what I was doing with the zine. Yeah. You know, just kind of organic, natural progressions. There was no like careerist agenda attached to it. But, it's, but at a certain point, it's like, whoa, wait a second. You know, it's like, you know, maybe something could be dug out here. But I mean, I worked, you know, for years and years, I worked regular jobs and still did the zine. And it wasn't until, 
wasn't until like maybe the mid to like the back half of the 80s that the notion that something more could be made out of it was becoming apparent. Did you see other models of kind of underground magazines that were a bit more ambitious? Did you did you have other magazines in mind or one model one model in particular and it wasn't a fanzine, it was like SST Records. Yeah. You know what 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 SST was doing was like pretty remarkable. You know, uh self releasing records, survived that lawsuit with Unicorn, you know, started their own booking agent, like everything was like very self reliant in-house in and that was kind of a model right there you know again it, like, it had nothing to do with the zine but you know what they were they were publishing Raymond's uh, comic books Raymond Pettibone's comic books mm-hmm. and uh, they were publishing like you know catalogs that they were using as inserts and stuff for you know the record releases so it's like kind of I don't know pretty interesting to me now, the mag was growing, you were saying, in the late 80s. And when we spoke 20 years ago, you said circulation for certain issues was up to around 30,000 copies. Those are crazy numbers. Yeah, there was a few issues. There was maybe a couple issues there where the print run was uh, kind of up there. And that's uh, you know what led to uh, problems because I soon discovered there were certain distributors that were like kind of padding their numbers and taking on, uh, you know, pre-ordering more from us than they could ever hope to sell. And then we started getting crushed with returns. That's, you know, what, what brought us into a, a publishing partnership. Yeah. The ill-fated publishing partnership. Are you free to talk about that partnership a bit? Not incredibly free to. You know, and part of that, too, is just because it's like, you know, uh, it's really kind of water under the bridge at this point. It just like, you know, brings on uh, sad memories. Did anything good come from that partnership that you can remember? Did it introduce you to some new readers, perhaps? God, I want to be able to answer this objectively. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In all fairness, the only thing it did was it gained us some access you know, to some artists and whatnot that we would have found our way to on our own, but it definitely greased the skids a lot easier. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it got you there pretty fast. It accelerated that it, whole it got, it got it, it got It got us there from instead of like zero to zero to 30, it got us there zero to 60. And that was it really, because I mean, you know, when all was said and done, it's like, you know, we were asked to uh, not... Uh, take our operating expenses for an undetermined, unspecified period of time. And the whole reason why we were getting paid is because I was generating X amount of advertising revenue per issue and handing that money over only to turn around and have to wait to get paid. And during the agreement, we were only like, it's like a, it's like a two-year deal, and out of uh, twenty-two out of the twenty-four months we were there, we only got paid on time twice. So it was like months in, months out, a battle to get money that we had already surrendered by way of our ad sales. And then don't forget our our distribution money is being, you know, our distribution stuff is being handled by them as well. Basically, what happened was we, you know, in order to have 
pie in the sky, higher numbers, we sacrificed direct access to our money and allowed a middleman to jump in between us and that. You're hoping that would facilitate some nice things and, and keep you free to just focus on the magazine and editorial stuff, but in the end... Yes, yes. Didn't quite work out that way with some of these other... It, it, it didn't work out that way, and I'm sure it's just as much a disappointment, at least up to a point for them, as it was for us. Yeah. Because, you know, they were going... You know, in all fairness, they had alleged that they were having significant financial problems all their own. But, you know, you put yourself in our shoes, you know, having to beg for your the money to pay your rent and stuff like that, having to beg, tw- you know, 22 months out of a 24-month deal, month in and month out, isn't the kind of thing that inspires you to want to forego for an indefinite amount of time your monthly operating expenses while they get through this rough financial patch. So we politely declined and they politely served us with a lawsuit. And then as it turned out, they had a war chest. It's not the kind of lawsuit where somebody just takes it on contingency. There's no ambulance that's being chased here. This is just purely I want to sue this person. So when you do that, you have to pay for those services. And those are services you don't pay for if you're broke. You know, we get sued for sport. But you kept going afterwards. So you got burned. You kept kept going like like a fool. I kept going. (laughs) I think sort of the period after that maybe was the magazine's peak creatively. What do you think? I think you guys did some awesome things in the late 90s. Well, thanks. It's really generous of you to say, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think when like, you know, I was like completely off on my own, like maybe those last six issues, I think they're probably the best issues I did, you know, the best issues we put together. And that's me being shorn of a lot of like baggage. You know, I didn't have Cindy working on it anymore. She's like, I'm out of my life at that point. And so I was like really just kind of doing my thing and doing it with the people, you know, having the contributors, you know, the writers, photographers, artists, and whatnot that were like, you know, all solid contributors. They're all solid players. They're all like, you know, pretty fucking reliable and it was pretty dialed in as a science. But what had happened was the internet came along and, you know, I was interested in being involved in that, but through the booking side of things I had had in some encounters with like, you know, computer people, tech heads that had great ideas, but no follow through insofar as like, you know, there was like one, one project in particular with the booking where somebody was going to streamline some things that I was doing so that uh, with a certain uh, software program, right. Whereas like, instead of like, you know, pressing a dozen buttons, you only have to press two and it does the work of a dozen. Hmm. And in each instance, I have those people flake out on me. So when the whole internet proposal thing came around, I was kind of gun shy because, you know, I myself didn't have the time nor the skills to like learn how to code and do HTML and all that shit. And by the same token, I didn't have, what trust I <laughs> would have otherwise had in the project was already kind of destroyed by these other 
knuckleheads. So I didn't get on board. And record labels started at that point, started to say, man, you know, we think we're going to take a chill on the advertising right now. It's like, you know, we're going to, we're going to like advertise over here on Pitchfork, you know, an ad, like, you know, we can run an ad there for two months and it's only going to cost us 25 bucks. You know, that cover in your flesh is going to run us 350. So that was the spiral. It was like, you know, the writing was on the wall. And less and less people was like, oh, we love what you're doing. Keep on doing. Don't stop doing what you're doing. But we got no money to help you do it. You know, and if the money isn't there for the printing, you know, and to pay, you know, what little we could pay, could offer our contributors and stuff, it was just like, yeah. So, I mean, you know, your your labor of love only goes so far. And that's it. Now, now, now fancies are kind of making a comeback now. But it's been... I mean, literally 20 years. They are making a comeback, but you're not seeing, like it's limited edition, 100, 200 copies kind of stuff. You're not seeing these kinds of numbers where you can count on walking into like a your local record store, indie store, and seeing things like Your Flesh and Motor Booty and Forced Exposure and tons of smaller right. things. There's right. nothing, that whole thing, that whole distribution infrastructure has just collapsed. Well, you know, I think a lot. Uh, there's chunks of the distribution are still in play. You know, like for example, Revolver is still there. I mean, you know, and Re- Revolver should be there because Revolver's always been a straight up, you know, uh, shooter. You know, they've always played within the boundaries of what they know they can do, and they've always they've always paid their vendors. So. That that's a recipe for success right there, you know. Just like the way Force Exposure's still around, you know, their mail order thing and whatnot. It's like you pay your vendors, you keep them happy, you stay within the lines of what you know you do best. Things work out okay, but I understand through other people, it's like the same problems with a lot of distributors still that were going on back then still exist today. Hmm. You know, wait, waiting, waiting around to get paid. You know, in some instances, not getting paid. Unanswered phone calls saying, where's where's the right. money for I mean, two like, issues ago? Yeah, <laughs> I've been down that road. You're not doing any longer, right? Oh, no, not since 2002. Um, and got burned that and same it, way. Yeah. So it's, On a much smaller scale, obviously. But we're, we're doing 2,000 copies of the last couple issues. And yeah, like $500 from a, from a distributor is, is a big deal to us. Yeah, I mean that's pretty great. I mean those last those last few issues of Your Flesh, I mean it was down to I want to say I was like down to like printing between 3 to 5,000 and, uh, and that was the other thing like it killed it too. It wasn't just the advertising, but the returns started to get really harsh. So we had like started working with this one company and I think they're still in existence called Ingram. Oh yeah, yeah, and Ingram Periodicals, totally. Yeah, big, big rack jobber, they're called. And man, they were just taking, they were t- taking a lot of copies and like, you know, it was affidavit returns. Yeah. So it's like you weren't even getting stripped covers or whole copy returns. You're just getting, you know, their their word with uh, a signature of John Hancock at the bottom of the spreadsheet. We took 2,000 copies from you and... We only sold 600 copies. I was like, wow, really? Disaster. 
you guys had some amazing covers. Do any of your covers stick out? Do you have a favorite one, Peter? Oh, God. You know, I love the Red Fox cover. There's no specific cover that's like an absolute favorite. You know, the S. Clay Wilson cover was great. The Dan Klaus cover I thought was great. You know, Art Chantry's cover was cool. You know, I love all of them for different reasons. Jim Blanchard's Red Fox cover. I think that one's pretty iconic. I like it. Against the orange background, I can picture it. It's really strong. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, all that stuff, for, at least for me personally, just kind of like grew out of my love for underground comics and underground art. And it was a treat to see these amazing covers as well, too, where the stuff on the outside was as important as the contents. How about you? You got a favorite? I like the photorealist one from the guy by voice. Sprout. Dobin Sprout. I quite like that one. And then there's another kind of striking one, the issue before, Jacob something, but it's it's dark brown and it just plays with light in a way. It looks kind of noirish. Do you oh, know what I'm talking about? Binocular, binoculars? Yeah, yeah. That one's that one's pretty striking and has a weird kind of Fritz Lang quality somehow. And and Right. Yeah. I, I like those two stand out. Those are some of the earliest issues I got too, so maybe that's part of it as well. That's cool. Contributors. You had a really cool collection of contributors, especially I'm I'm thinking in the mid late nineties. Any voices stand out to you? Oh, I just think some of the standout contributors would be like Mike Trouchon, Dave Rick. Oh yeah, he's great. I don't know, it's tough. I mean it's it's weird. It's like, you know, memory <laughs> when you get older, it's like some stuff is like crystal clear and some of it's foggy. Yeah. I got to I got to mention Howard Wolfing who we had Howard uh, on Wolfing the Howard Wolfing was great. Yeah, you know, we had him on the podcast. With yeah, I listened to that. Uh with Howard it was a little weird because uh Howard like actually drew some controversy here and there just simply because you know his writing style which was a pastiche of like Meltzerism cobbled together with his own, you know, stream of conscious flair. It was one of those styles where people were like either into it or hated it. And he was definitely one of those writers where like, you know, there were certain factions of people like, you know, speaking my ears like, oh, God, why do you have him? Why do you have him write for Meg? It's like, it's all great until you get up a, on a Howard review. And it's like, ah, that's great. <laughs> you know you're doing something right when all right more, all the more reason to like let howard do uh do more and the thing the thing that was great about howard was that uh or the thing that is great about howard is like completely indiscriminate you could like put together a box of stuff for him and not even have to bother including the press release and he wouldn't give a good goddamn if there was or wasn't a press release for it he's just just gonna go with his gut and say what he felt you know there was no parroting i mean what you were getting was the unvarnished gospel according to howard and that to me that was gold it seemed like he was comfortable covering all kinds of things. He would do prog, he would do jazz, he would do punky stuff, he'd do garage. You didn't, you didn't have to. You didn't have to cater to what you perceived his taste was. Yeah. On any, 
you could you could throw anything against the wall and it either stuck or it didn't didn't matter and he wouldn't give you hell for it whereas i had the other contributors like oh man what you give this to me for <laughs> <laughs> one guy also really liked uh who's yeah probably the other extreme of howard is bruce adams who is a good friend of yours i know and he he was part of cranky records um yeah. but just totally just got to the heart of a record like more kind of analytical style not stylistically trying to like bake break ground or be obnoxious but just kind of straight reviews that get to the heart of like this is why this works for me absolutely and i think that that same that same aesthetic is like played well to the record label you know cranky's favor you know i don't know if you met his uh, former partner in the label but uh you know uh they were like yin and yang they were two, two opposites of one another that just complemented yeah, no, I never met Joel, but Bruce's, I guess, his background working at record labels and just his ability to just sort of hone in on like what makes a band and a record special was like that came across really strong in his reviews. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think we're like, in a lot of ways, I was like, you know, blessed to have a lot of people of uh, good quality bring something to the table. And, you know, I, I would like, you know, hope to believe that that was a reflection of their appreciation for what it was I was trying to put out there. Those were like, you know, the grace points of doing it. You know, the, the little points of gratification of like, you know, basically, I think a good editor, good publisher is like somebody who's like really kind of capable of like, you know, aggregating, you know, properly assigning tasks you know, making the best compilation and aggregate of those assignments. It's a curatorial process. Do you miss that a bit? I'm sure you don't miss like the shit work and all the distribution headaches, but do you miss that kind of fun part of it, assembling some cool writers and, and getting a nice oh, yeah, cover? Yeah, sure, that and the conversations and the relationships that went with it, of course. Yeah, they're, to, you know, they're missed. Do you think there'll be a Your Flesh coffee table or a digital archive at some point? At some point, there there probably be at least a digital archive. There's been talk over the last twenty years, you know, of something happening, but the stars haven't aligned on that. And like honestly, it's like I don't really see. You know, you can't you can't do like a touch and go style because I mean those weren't like super thick issues. Nonetheless, there's a single volume that has every single thing that they did in it. Yeah. And, you know, you're just not going to get away with doing that with what we did. That would be a pretty crazy thick book if it had everything in it. It would have to be like a best of compilation if it were to be like. Yeah, it would have to be some kind of best of if you were going to approach it that way. So it's like, you know, I haven't even really wrapped my head around how you would go about doing it. But, you know, it can be done. I just don't know if it's something that I'm going to personally have a hand in doing. Somebody else might need to do that if, uh, you know, anyone thinks it's really necessary. And I'm not really convinced it is necessary. The whole thing is, is it's so niche at this point, you know? Yeah. There's an association between your flesh and amphetamine reptile records as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? that I was, you know, I've been friends with Tom Hazelmeyer for like ever. You know, when I met Tom, 
really kind of like super ambitious in terms of when I say ambition, you just had like a, like a lot of like, let's go get them energy. So in the early days of your flesh, he'd like, you know, bring his, uh, his family had like a station wagon that the kids got to like fight over using and, you know, he'd come and rouse me. It's like, okay, come on, let's go get some, let's go get some zines out to the record stores. And he would drive me all over town. And that's the early days. That's how we got the uh, zines distributed. It was like, thanks to Tom running me around town. Cause I didn't have a car back then. Yeah. It's just a relationship that kind of grew from there. But, you know, as for the label, it's like, I had no hand in it. The closest I had a hand into it was, uh, we did this uh, stupid metal parody band called Bloodshed, and uh, we recorded uh, recorded a couple songs when he was on leave from the Marine Corps, and then put it out on a flexi disc that was included with one of the issues of the zine. We used the name Amphetamine Reptile Records on the disc, so one could argue that that was the very first release on Amreps, which it kind of was, but it kind of wasn't. And you played on that. Yeah. <laughs> Very incompetent bass. Is it out? Does this exist anywhere out there? Like, is it on YouTube? Has it been uploaded somewhere? I don't, or? Think, I don't think, I don't think anybody's successfully put it up on YouTube and I might have like one or two stashed away, but, uh, now nah, I, I don't know if that's ever going to surface. Maybe. What is MREP's legacy you think? And how does it hold up? Well, it's still, it's still kind of going, isn't it? I mean, it's like he stopped doing the label, but he's using it as a vehicle for art now, for Vanity Press. And that's pretty cool, you know, to stop doing something and then, but then he'd be able to turn around and resurrect it where it's still like kind of sort of performing its original function, but under the guise of performing an entirely different function which is like to have these like, you know, cool, like arty artifacts. Yeah, he's he's a big toy collector, I think, right? I don't know if he, I don't know, I haven't talked to him in a while. I don't know if he's still collecting toys. The last time I talked to him, he, he was like talk, making sounds about wanting to purge a lot of his various collections, his toy collection, book collection, maybe unloading, you know, a lot of the records he's accumulated over the years. I don't know. I have to catch up with him at some point. What did you think about the documentary they made about him, The Color of Noise? I thought it was pretty great, uh, but maybe 30 minutes too long. Too much for one person. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's like everybody's doing, everybody's doing uh, documentaries. I guess documentaries in a way is like, you know, today's fanzine. Yeah. You know, but it's, but it's like long-winded love letters to one specific subject. Yeah, you know, I I think it's great. And I think one of the best documentaries in the music world that I've seen lately was like, I thought that Cosmic Psychos one was super well done. I didn't even know there was a Cosmic But of course, there is a Cosmic Psychos. I like, no surprise there is, but I'll have to see that. God, there's 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 almost a documentary on just about any given subject from that from that day and age. Yeah. Absolutely. There's not a documentary, there's a podcast. Can we talk about booking shows a bit, Peter? How about creature booking? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. When did you get involved in booking shows and, and representing bands? 
well, didn't the representing bands thing kind of kicked in after like actually putting together some shows? You know, when I lived in the short time of, that I lived in Seattle, I got uh, they had a real problem. Well, a lot of venues had a problem with like staying open. And then other venues had a problem with like just getting the proper licensing, even if they were like a part time thing. Uh, there was this thing called the uh, teenage uh, dance ordinance or something that they were like that city was like city council was trying to use to kind of shut stuff down before they could actually happen. And that was like part of the thing, along with those flyers that I was getting in the mail from Ron while living out there that kind of coerced me into going back to Minnesota was uh it just wasn't in Seattle live music wasn't thriving because the city was fucking with the kids and they were fucking with the venues and they were making it hard for things to happen that along with that isolated thing where a lot of bands just didn't think there was anything going on up there as like isolated what else are we going to go to as I mentioned before so early on I got to see people being resourceful and renting out halls and getting PAs and things of that nature. And then, you know, like even one of my roommates was like uh, the in-house booker for a club called Rec in uh, Seattle. So, you know, I was like seeing different sides of it. I was on that vacation. I gave the Hooskers my phone number and said, you know, if you guys are going to make it out to the West Coast, you got a place to stay. Here's my number. Here's my address. And my roommate who booked Rex had relationship with the guy who booked uh, uh, bigger hall shows. And he was putting on a dead Kennedy show at the famous Showbox in Seattle. And so through my roommate, the Hooskers were able to get on that dead Kennedy show. So and this is like kind of like saying, so it's like an early peek behind the curtain of like kind of what was going on in the DIY concert thing there. So you fast forward into Minneapolis, the zine was giving me, you know, by having phone conversations with like, you know, the Stern brothers from BYO, Youth Brigade, um, you know, it just kind of opened, opened up a whole network and it's like, oh, well, I know this place over here is starting to do shows and they've asked me to bring some stuff in and, you know, so lining things up in that manner, you know, connect, helping bridge gaps and connect dots. And it just kind of went from there. So I was like, you know, co-presenting, you know, being able to put the Your Flesh logo on flyers, passing out, distributing flyers, lending profile to the zine and lending profile to the shows. You know, it was like everything was like kind of uh, synchronistic. Yeah, and then there was there were some bands that uh, you know needed some help, didn't know have the wherewithal necessarily how to get out of town, and I got approached a couple of times. I was like, hey, you should you should uh, give this a whirl. You got you got you got the phone number for that club in Madison, Wisconsin, a number for you know any place in Chicago, and you know one thing led to another, and the next thing I know, I'm booking tours. What was that experience like? And were you going on tours as well, or just booking them from home? I, I did. I did a little. Did a little of that too. But you know, mainly just kind of putting it together. Uh, at first, it was okay. There's this learning curve. It wasn't a super steep learning curve, though. 
I mean, the biggest thing was like this learning, learning how to deal with certain personalities, you know, and being able to negotiate like, you know, reasonable deals for your artists and like, you know, just hope and pray that the, the bands would be dealt with squarely and fairly. It was great. There's a lot of, a lot of rewards for a good run there, but you know, there's a lot of hardships in that world as well. You know, you're dealing, you're dealing with the, you're dealing with the tension horns. Yeah. You know, so that can be a kind of a weird world. You know, I mean, record labels, people who run record labels deal with the same thing, but from a different, a different size side of it. And that can be, be kind of challenging. Can you share any like memorable experiences with a band or a show or a tour? You know, it's a reward unto itself to like see like, you know, the labor pay, you know, the hard work and the labor pay off for everybody when like things are firing on all cylinders and, you know, everybody's working towards a common goal and nobody's head's gotten too big. Uh, You know, it's pretty cool. Uh, Any particular success stories come to mind? Like any that you'd be like, man, it was gratifying breaking that band into that you know, getting them into that town and part of the country where they'd had no exposure before. I don't want to say all of them kind of had those moments, but, you know, Helmet had that moment. L7 had that moment. Rocket from the Crypt. You know, uh, why the cows were never became as big as the Jesus lizard is still beyond me. It was all good on that level. Are you still doing? No. You know, I, I gave it up. I got I got sick of it. Yeah. You're doing it for like 30 plus years, is that right? I did it for around 30 plus years. You know, from about 85 until about five years ago. So what's that make it? Uh, you're talking to a librarian, my man. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Over thirty years. Yeah, yeah. that sounds right. Yeah, over thirty. Years. Yeah, it's about exactly thirty years, actually. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. You know, like take a band like Nashville Pussy and like see them sign the deal that they signed with the people that they signed was like pretty fucking remarkable. Like, you know, fiction being stranger or life being stranger than fiction. You know, 1999, and, uh, you know, they signed that kind of a deal. And they, back then, there was, like, a major problem with their name. Their name was not a marketable name. You know, and this day and age, I mean, if they were to come along now, nobody would bat an eye. Nobody would think twice about it. I mean, I don't know if you saw the Grammys the other night, but come on. <laughs> Do you think 20 years ago, Mickey Minaj would be doing her thing? And uh, what Megan the Stallion would be doing uh, their thing on network television in that fashion? I didn't see it. I heard about it. I probably wouldn't want to oh, see it. Yeah. Pretty remarkable. Like, you know, the word pussy was a problem 20 years ago. Now, now you got women like on TV really representing their sexuality to a full effect just short of being pornographic. Yeah, yeah. Whether whether all this stuff is good or bad is is totally up for debate. It's, it's debatable, of course. Yeah, it was, it, it's remarkable. Yeah, it is remarkable. 
I mean, I, I love the way that the Melvins still have the same work aesthetic that now that they did when I first started working with them. Yeah, still, still like doing their own thing, obviously, just wanting to make music that pleases them. Yeah, but the, 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 cool thing, the, the cool and remarkable thing about that band is they, they kind of had a handle, a good grip on their shit early on so it made them uh embrace what i like to call like you know just basically the journeyman's aesthetic uh, you become you become a stonemason and you become very talented at like doing that specific thing and you make no illusions that the world needs to be any bigger or brighter than that I respect that more and more, I think, when bands have all kinds of aspirations to affect change in other kinds of ways. I respect the fact that, yeah, there's... Well, they, 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 affect, they, they affect a change just simply by being tenacious. Well, and the beauty of it, too, in part, is that they, you know, they went for the pie-in-the-sky thing, but they were able to suss it out real quickly that... It wasn't it what they weren't built for it. And nor did nor did they need to conform in order to be able to. So they didn't. And here they are and pretty much everybody else that was like kind of that went that route around them is like pretty much by one form or another kind of dead and gone. <laughs> Thanks to Peter for taking the time and to you for listening. Back issues of your flesh show up regularly on eBay. And Rock Raiders back again in two weeks. I hope you'll join us then.